Welcome to Learte della Me, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guests are Jen Landos of Academy Cavallo and David Borman of Academy Duello. Devin Borman and Jen Yandels to talk to us about cavalry. Jen and uh, Devin, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason we brought you on is because a lot of the the conduct of um, you know, military operations that happens throughout the period um, that we're highlighting in uh, these episodes um, deals a lot with light cavalry, heavy cavalry. And we wanted to kind of get your perspective on what's going on, because um, while we study historical European martial arts, this starts to feel like it's getting into a, a very specialized realm. And we were hoping that you guys could enlighten us on, on what that realm is like and what it's about and some of the considerations that we might not quite understand when we're looking at the texts like Fiore or um, Marazzo, for example, or even Dalagokie with his jousting chapter, um, and just kind of Give us, give us the perspective that we need to really kind of understand this material. For sure. Great. So, um, Devin, do you want to kick it off? Or, um, uh, uh, Stephen, do you want to kick it off with the yeah, first question? Yeah, I'd love question? to. Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Okay, uh, so just uh, add a little thing in here. Um, just, Jen, what is the name of your school, please? Academy Cavallo. All right, so that's that's the, the horse academy, right? Yep. So, and you've been you've been involved in mounted combat and horse riding for a significant period of time, right? I've been riding horses since before I could walk. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I'm guessing you're older than eight or nine at this point. <laughs> yeah, and um, I started the mounted combat program in 2010. So that's uh, I guess no, 12 years now. <laughs> Got it. That's amazing. Okay, so before a lot of us even picked up a sword and started swinging it around in any kind of meaningful pattern. All right, um, so let me ask this to you guys both. We'll start with Jen. Um, Jen, what is it like to wield a lance on horseback? How heavy is it? Is it hard trying to be accurate with the tip? Um, well, that depends. Um, I mean, a lance, it's like how long is a piece of string? Because okay. lances were... Various lengths. I think if you're thinking about sort of your typical medieval jousting lance, which is you know ten plus feet long, uh, it is very difficult to have point control um, because you're holding it with one hand. It's you, you've got uh, the back end of that lance under your arm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know if you think about a rapier and and um, you know making disengages with a rapier now you know, triple or quadruple the length of that. Um, so, yeah, point control is something that you're, you're always working on with lances. Um, now, having said that, you know, I I do not joust. Um, the, la- the spears that we work with are 
in the program are significantly shorter. So we tend to work with, uh, you know, your six, six foot spears, sometimes 10 foot. Um, but, uh, when they're not like the, the highly decorated, um, fancy ones that you'll see, um, in jousts. Okay, so that's interesting. I, I always thought lances were a lot longer than that. So uh, in a battle type of situation, uh, what size of lance would you typically expect uh, an Italian in the 16th century to be using? Um, well, it seems, it's, again, it's hard, to, it's hard to say for sure um, because different sources show different lengths of lance. So if you look at the German manuscripts, they have longer lances generally. Um, okay. you're, you're seeing like the 15 foot um, and up. Um, and then, um, you know, going back to Fiore, he uses quite short spears uh, in in his illustrations. Um, so it really, it really depends what you're doing. I, I would say... 10 to 15 feet probably is your, your average lance in that time period. Got it. Okay. So we know that there was um, both light and heavy cavalry and depending on kind of when in that battle, because there was kind of a change in military tactics that started to occur mm -hmm. in the early 1500s where mm -hmm. they used to combine the light and heavy cavalry together. And okay. so the light cavalry tended to have the shorter lances like we see in kind of those Fiore illustrations and the heavy ah. cavalry often had longer, heavier lances. And so then they were organized into small units. Um, but then I know that in some battles, certainly getting kind of into the middle of the kind of Italian wars period, they yep. start to divide their heavy and light cavalry apart right. a lot more. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then I think again, the heavy cavalry tend to have those longer lances and the light cavalry again, tend to still have the, the shorter lances um, so that they're just more maneuverable in general. Um, and certainly Jen can speak to that even more than, than me, but you know, there's the lance provides a certain amount of inertia when you're maneuvering on your horse, especially if you have it forward. Um, oh, interesting. And so when you have a long lance, even though, um, you know, you might think, well, if I'm just turning my horse and things that shouldn't matter, but it, it has this kind of moment arm, this long inertial arm that you're kind of dragging along with you. It's easier to do that if you point the lance up okay. um, to, to make turns. But there's also lots of techniques involving how you turn your horse around the lance. So you're kind of maneuvering, you're you know, striking with the lance on one side and then bringing it to the other side or turning. If you want to, you may be striking over behind you. So there's lots of popping the lance up and striking behind you and then turning your horse around no while fooling. leaving the lance essentially in space in that, that place. Um, wow, and so that okay. really speaks a lot okay. to the inertia of the, of the lance. Okay. Um, awesome. and, and Jen can speak cause she's had some, some excellent workshops from people who do, there's kind of modern, um, there's some, some modern derivations of this lance work, which involves doing equitation, you know, maneuvering your horse around a lance at, and placing it in the ground and moving around it. These are all like maneuvering and exercise drills around working around this, this inertia of the lance. And Jen, you can probably chat, chat more about that because you've had a few people come out to teach about that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really had people uh, teaching, but Garocha is a, um, is the Spanish, uh, style of, of, it's basically dressage, which is, you know, 
moving your horse in, mm-hmm. in different patterns yeah. with a lance. So they drag it on the ground, they ride under it, they they spear with it. Um, and it actually comes from the cattle herding tradition because uh, cattle herding in the south of France and in Spain, they, do, they don't use a lasso like they do in, mm-hmm. in the Old West. They use a pole, um, usually with a, with a little crescent-shaped prongs on the end. Um, so, you know, they would have... It, it's definitely related to the lance and spear work because, you know, a long stick is a long stick when you're maneuvering your horse. Um, right. But the garrocha work... Uh, comes from um, comes from cattle herding, but it's definitely a useful discipline to do with your horse um, for getting you good at maneuvering a spear. Um, but there, yeah, as Devin was mentioning, it's that that inertia of the lance is is probably the hardest thing to manage when you're when you're first um, picking up a lance on horseback. Uh, it there are a lot of motion, a lot of movements that use that inertia. Um, as Devin mentioned, turning under the lance, um, doing a turn uh, around the lance, and also sweeping. So against foot soldiers, you can you can couch your lance to the side of your body and gallop in a U-turn and just sweep an entire group of people off their feet. Oh, that, that actually brings up the next thing I was wanting to talk about, is it? It's about how it's different to use a lance against somebody on horseback versus someone trying to hit somebody on foot. So when you're going against people on foot, you try to sweep them with the lance by moving in a circle. Is that the idea? That would be one one sort of crowd-clearing um, maneuver. I mean, it depends what they've got. If they've got uh, pole arms, um, then you're going to be sweeping their pole arms rather than sweeping them, okay. um, which you know would probably be a clearing motion so that somebody else could ride in behind you. Um, oh. You know, it's something you'd kind of, you'd send one person in, clear that, you know, try to clear some of those spears so that the next person um, can actually get at the people. So that would be one of the useful things in the, so the, the military organization of the knights was often in a lance and, you know, there was maybe a light cavalry guy assigned to every heavy cavalry guy. So you'd send in the squire, or whatever you call the the second to sweep the lance aside so the knight could come in and, like, mow them down. No, the squire squires don't generally... Um, well, it, again, the sort of the, the knight and squire um, combo is usually more of a, um, more of a medieval uh, tactic. Um, but, no, the, the squires weren't generally fighting on horseback. The squires were were looking after the horses, were um, getting the knight armored, um, and they may be riding a palfrey or something like that, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't generally be part of a, a heavy right. cavalry charge. Right. And, and I think that's the important thing in this period. There's um, the, the lances, when we're talking now, this is the thing where you get right. confusing the language, the unit. lance meaning the unit, right. um, the mixture of heavy cavalry and light cavalry. You know, the light cavalry were men-at-arms, which are typically either... Um, part of civil guards, so maybe mm-hmm. um, in the service of the city of Bologna, and so or are mercenaries, but you know, meaning civil guard are also paid positions. Right. So they're they're paid troops, um, and heavy cavalry could be um, nobles. They also could be um, uh, condot- condottieri or 
or both, of course. Right. Um, and uh, and so that pairing, I think it was was as Jen saying, wasn't the squire relationship of the medieval feudal period. Right. It's a different kind of relationship. But you know, what I don't know as far as on the tactics. What I know is that the um, that the lances had a really hard time against the pikes. Um, yeah. And I think having strategies like <laughs> right. sweeping, as Jen's talking about, sweeping the, the, you know, a lance is usually a group of five or six. And so I could imagine that maybe that sweeping tactic might be used by one group to open up the for the okay. next lance. Next group to come in. Um, but, uh, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, as far as the, the reading and things I've done at this time, there's a lot more descriptions of how cavalry units were um uh, who tried to face, you know, initially the Swiss pikes um, right. had bad experiences. Um, yeah, and, they tended and to have to run until, away. <laughs> right. And so the, the, they start holding their cavalry more in reserve, try to use artillery and things to break up pike units first. Right. And then bring cavalry in as part of flanking actions following, um, uh, following those positions. Or try to get the enemy to expose their own artillery and use your cavalry against the artillery. Um, so using them against either the, you know, the musketeers or the cannons um, to to that's where you really wanted to apply your cavalry. Uh, and then of course there was this, you know, kind of cat and mouse game between the the uh, pikes trying to defend the artillery. Um, and then, of course, you know you can't have your pikes ahead of your artillery, so you're having to play some sort of role where right. the pikes are moving ahead and behind, or your your musketeers or your arquebusers right. are moving ahead and behind those those pike units. And so then it's all about. I think the cavalry are trying to be, and I think this is where light cavalry started to play a, a bigger role. Is you know separating them as a unit, is they could move more quickly than heavy cavalry units could, um, and were more maneuverable and could use more hit and run type tactics. And so they could try to um, make some gains against forces like the archivists and things while they were exposed and then get out before they had to deal with the, the pikes. Um, yeah. And I, so, I think like Dick, the Cordoba's uh, response to that, right. Um, that we see, which it was really kind of the, the shifting of the tide in the Italian wars where the French started to lose control at the battlefield and actually started losing um, considerably was, uh, you know, down around Naples um, when he basically entrenched his, um, his arquebusiers and his, uh, um, his pikemen. Um, so that way they couldn't get hit by the heavy cavalry. And so, mm-hmm. Um, I think the French ended up deciding that they were going to try to send in uh, the Swiss first and the Swiss got torn up and then they just, they were like, all right, well, you know, we're just going to commit everybody and then try to charge that fixed position. Um, and then they just got torn to shreds. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah, it's like constant evolution, right? right? It you, is. you start doing something and it, it almost feels like, you know, uh, Carl von Clausewitz says that, uh, you know, warfare is a duel on a, a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and Every time I start thinking about these things, it's exactly what I'm thinking about. You know, I mean, obviously it's over a course of five or 10 years, but, you know, we see this, I've got a counter to your counter, and now I'm going to go with the counter to your counter. And we go through this, like, evolution progression. It's really beautiful. All right. Uh, let's let's get back on to uh, talking about the uh, usage of, actual usage of the lances here. Um so what about carrying a lance? I'm expecting, since it has a lot of inertia, that it's pretty heavy. Is it something that you can ride around with for a significant period of time? Or would you pass off the duty of hauling your lance around to somebody else and then get it when it was time to fight? 
Um, you can carry it around. It is, um, they had stirrup mounts so that you could carry it vertically. Oh, that's great. Um, you can also carry it over your shoulder. It's quite comfortable. I mean, it's still heavy, but you can right. carry it backwards over your shoulder and rest your arm over, um, over the back end of the lance, over the butt. Um, and it balances quite well. Um, but that is one of the squire's jobs is to, you know, but again, this is kind of more in the earlier period when you've got sort of the feudal system. You've got a knight with his squire, and he's usually got a wagon to carry <laughs> to, to carry right. all his gear around. Right. Um, uh, so, and again, that's sort of if you're riding into war, you would you would be carrying your own your own lance as you approach the battlefield, rather than try and you know pick it up. Um, you know, at the battlefield. But again, you don't want to carry it for a long period of time, but the stirrup mount certainly helps. Okay. So, yeah, so you think of it, the base of the lance rests in the stirrup mount, essentially, mm -hmm. by your foot. Um, and so that takes that. And then you can, you know, a lance rest on armor is a place that you can allow the lance to, to be at rest. So you, again, don't have to be handling it. You can be reining your horse while you do it. I think an important thing here when we talk about lance or, you know, Italian lanza is this is kind of this word. We often think now when people think of lance, they really think of medieval tournament jousting lances. Right. And this is a very purpose built weapon for jousting tournaments. Right. Um, and so the, the battlefield lance is a different kind of beast. It's not made to shatter as a medieval tournament lance is. It doesn't have a big fist at the end of it. You know, it has a, <laughs> a point on it. Um, and uh, and so then we and we have different lengths of them, uh, and they don't have you know you think of like that that medieval tournament lance, um, like we do have like in the in the German manuals you do see the hand protection around the base of the lance, mm -hmm. but then you also see in some manuals no protection at all, just a spear. And of course, again, the Italians would have called both of those things lanza. They just would have said right. one was like a heavy or longer lance, and the other is a shorter lance. Um, and so you know when we think about lance and we're reading about lances. Uh, you know, even the spear you fight with on the ground is called a lance, right? Right. Um, it's very frustrating. So, <laughs> right. So it's, it's you know, like now we've made this distinction between these words. Um, and so I think it's important that that it's difficult to know when we when we look at at these things, how long or heavy those lances were. And certainly the my impression of them, and Jen probably may have some more ideas on this. My impression is that they were not as as. They were not built in the same way. They weren't heavy in quite the same way that the tournament lances were, okay. um, uh, nor balanced in quite the same way. Again, because the point of a of a spear is quite different than the the these the way that the medieval jousting uh, tournament lances are, um, and. Uh, uh, and it does change the implications of things when you're not going to necessarily break the point. Um, when you're using it, so that's something they that have to consider in um, uh, in your in spearing somebody on on the battlefield. That there's a, a consequence to to that. Right. Like, how would you keep it from getting stuck into somebody after you hit them? Um, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to let go, <laughs> and there goes okay. your spear. <laughs> Darn it! <laughs> yeah. Sometimes bye bye lance. Like that's really okay. the best thing. If you're going to leave it in that person, not. Um, not, uh, you know, like jousting tournaments kind of come from exercises of keep one being brave enough to face the point. Like part of the jousting tournament right. idea is I want to face a point at me and not 
be, um, you know, the worst thing you can do is try to dodge with your body. Actually, in a lot of ways, dodge with your body. Could You could take yourself off your horse or your horse right. could just respond to you. And if you're in a lance, a group, and you suddenly start like veering because you are turning mm-hmm. your body and, and, and Jen will comment more on, can comment more on how horses respond to your legs and how you're moving your upper body and things, well-trained horses, you're going to be a problem in your unit. So the jousting tournament is about developing one part, developing the bravery to face the point of another lance that you are not going to block um, in right. certain circumstances, meaning there are techniques for blocking with lances and parrying. One thing I think Jen and I talk about when people ask us, do you guys do jousting? I think, well, at least my stock answer is, um, well, we like to block the opponent's attacks. Um, so that's, that's why we are doing something kind of different. Um, but but there's certainly lots of situations where you you will not have the capacity to block all the points that are at you. So you need to be able to keep your seat, which is the kind of riding term. And then the other is to be able to keep your seat while you strike something else with the point of your spear or lance so that that itself doesn't take you off of your horse. Um, okay. And, uh, and so... That's that's a lot that needs to be coordinated. And that's, of course, again, the fact that you're going to lose your lance or it's going to be broken is the reason also that cavalry units carried other weapons with them. Right. Um, so I know that in this period, too, that a lot of light cavalry units carried sabers. Um, so so my guess in some of the writings I've had is that those are curved cavalry-type swords. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we know certainly that some of the heavy cavalry carried side swords. Um, you know, what we would think, straight bladed, right. cut and thrust, rapiers, a secondary weapons okay uh so let's talk about uh when you're on a horse and the guy on the ground has a pointy stick of one variety or another um and you're riding at them can you set that stick aside with your lance in order to hit them um you can try but the problem is (laughs) the problem is you have one hand on your lance and he has two hands on his stick Ooh, that's cheating. Or even it's if cheating. he has one hand, his stick is shorter, so he has, he's not presenting as long a lever yeah. to you, and you're presenting a huge long lever to him. Yeah. Okay, so there's yeah. no really horse There's no... <laughs> well, some, some of those guys on the ground had pretty long sticks, and <laughs> you look at some of those okay. drawings, like, the, you know, even the, the you know, one, but one guy on the ground with a stick, um, you can ride around. The problem okay. is when you get a bunch of guys who stay together and don't move. Um, so I can go faster. But but even still, the guy on the ground has the benefit of being able to pivot. So human beings can pivot mm-hmm. on the spot. Horses right. horses are less maneuverable. So right. um, it, it presents all sorts of problems. Um, and, you know, even, even if he doesn't have... A dozen guys beside him. Um, you can gallop around behind. There are techniques. Um, to be honest, if I was facing somebody on the ground with a, a long pointy stick, whether it's a spear or a halberd or whatever, I would actually rather have a sword against that. Really? Because oh. unless yeah, my unless that. my lance was significantly longer. You know, if my if I had a very long spear that I could get past him and he can't reach me, that's mm-hmm. one thing. But if our if if our um, weapons are about the same length, I would rather have a sword because then I have something with a cross guard that I can actually pick up that um, his weapon with yeah. and ride yeah. through and get you know like you just 
pick that uh, spear <laughs> or halberd or whatever up on your cross guard and keep riding through. Oh, man, I would have never really thought of that. What a great, great insight. Thanks, Jen. That's really cool. All right. So that could maybe also explain why uh, there was such a growth in light cavalry against as the, the pike became more prominent because it was better to have more light cavalry guys with swords that were able to deal with these people than heavy guys with lances that cost a lot more well, money. And the, and the light cavalry also had short spears. Yeah. So, you know, short spears are less exposed as big, long levers. The ground right. people can, they're more versatile in how they can be used. Um, I, 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 don't, also, I haven't seen a lot of images cav- of them. Oh, go ahead, Jen. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of images of them throwing spears at this point, but we know mm-hmm. that certainly shorter spears are easier to throw as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the you genets. can deploy them in, in different ways. Um, okay. And uh, I think, you know, one thing to really to have a feeling for in – as somebody on the ground. And so, you know, I've, I've actually done a lot of, of classes with in parallel with Jan, where sometimes I'm teaching people on the ground while Jan is teaching people on <laughs> horses, right? Perfect. And, yeah. and, some, and we've nice. done, Jan and I have done ground versus horse and things. Mm-hmm. But even just when you're training, just think the average person training around a bunch of people doing horse stuff around you, people on the ground are rightfully intimidated by the size of horses. You know, a lot of the mm-hmm. chaos the that mounted units um, put into against um, ground units was that the horse itself is intimidating. It's large. It takes up space. It maneuvers around you very quickly. Even though you are more maneuverable as a human, um, the mass and and presence of a horse is quite powerful. Um, and so, you know, also as Jen was saying, when you pick up somebody's sword with your own on horseback, you also have tremendous amounts more mass to to be striking with and so even the damage that you do to a person when you hit them with a horse is going to throw them back into other people in their um in their unit and so that's why so when you have more lighter skirmishing units which you know it's i think is a thing that we have to recognize too is that pike units were not just extraordinary because they had lots of pointy sticks but because they were a very regimented type of unit and in the prior time in the medieval time um, uh, and, and this is true of in, really coming up before the Italian wars, the Italians were fighting with a lot more loose formation units. Right. This was more of a medieval style of fighting. And those right. loose formation units are way more vulnerable to the kind of chaos that cavalry can, can put on them. And again, from just the practical side, I can tell you it took me um, a long time to feel really comfortable even just walking around a passive horse. You know, like hmm. those things are big and you know they, they can big. kick you and they can bite you and... Uh, and they've got a lot, and they can move you out of the way if they're if they're compelled to do so, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Um, and that's a, a really, as a you know, as a, it's 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 intimidating to stand there and have you know Jen come riding at me with a horse uh, while I am on the ground and I'm going to try some counter cavalry maneuver. Um, you know whether that is some things we have images of, uh, we have documentation of her like trying to trip her horse, um, or really? use my pole arm to trip her horse, yep. or. <laughs> or try to stri- strike the horse with the point of my lance or sword, or try to attack her. All of those things are really intimidating, and they feel like you have to have tremendously good timing. And it's hard to judge, you know, when Jen's riding at me, yes, I have a sense of her line, but she can still move. And, you know, like I, me dodging out of the way, I have to really dodge at the last moment if I don't want her to counter that that dodging move. Right. Um, and so all of that takes a tremendous amount of of presence of mind, and I think that's the one of the things that the that from a from a, a martial arts perspective, 
you've got a tremendous amount of presence and we know how powerful that is in a duel, how somebody coming with a lot of presence can be very powerful. Right. Um, if you just multiply, the horse is a presence multiplier. <laughs> it's a presence multiplier. And, I love that and, analogy. And don't forget the height as well. Um, yeah. Just, it, I mean, never mind the mass and the, and the ability to step on you. Um, anybody, you know, Often what determines a sword fight is if you can get your sword on top of another person's. Well, when you're on a horse, you are always on top, right? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of one of the interesting things we were looking at in one of our previous episodes with another horse person that we were interviewing is the, the I guess you would call it a rising mandrito from on top of a horse, which essentially looks like playing polo with somebody's head would be almost impossible to block. Um. Because it's hitting to your high line, but you're sh- you don't really have the strength to defend yourself against that. And it looks like that would be one and, tough and blow to do. And from the ground, with. a lot of the techniques um, in many different manuals are essentially taking um, chingale and right. making deflections from it. So right. you're not trying to meet the mass. You're not trying to parry it. You're trying to set the the lance or the spear or the sword aside uh, in order to open up the rider or their horse. But by the time you open them up, they're probably already gone. You've got a moment. <laughs> and a lot closes of correct- very fast. <laughs> yeah. And Jen and, and Devin, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but aren't a lot of dressage techniques specifically about trampling, biting, um, kind of putting yourself in a position where the, the horse is also a weapon, not just the rider? There's um, yes and no. Um, the, the high school movements, um, sort of the airs above ground and things that we associate with the Royal Spanish riding school, the Lepizaners that most people are familiar with, the the white horses that do the, the fantastic Mm -hmm. jumps. Um, it it was, I mean, it, it has been put out that those were all military moves. Um, but those, that sort of training didn't start really until about our the period we're talking about now so it wasn't it wasn't part of the medieval battlefield um for certainly things dressage movements like turns on the forehand turns on the haunches uh canter pirouettes and things like that are very useful in the battlefield um but horses um it would be a last ditch effort something like a capriole where your horse jumps in the air and kicks out with its back feet. That would be, that would be, I've got to get out of dodge now. Um, <sighs> movement. The things like the levade where they're up on their hindquarters, um, you would almost never do in battle because what that does is is shows your lovely soft underbelly to all those infantry. Right. Um, yeah. but what that, the levade is, is more of a training move to, to build the strength in the horse so that they can do not what we think of as a, you know, a black stallion rear, but that controlled, uh, controlled lifting up the front legs. So they're sitting on their haunches, essentially. Um, that would be a strength. Horse squats. Horse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that would give them, you know, that builds up their hindquarters. It shows control. And a lot of that was developed, um, as horses became less, uh, the heavy cavalry became less a part of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. This is what this is what the nobility were doing to, you know, maintain their horsemanship and show off their horsemanship 
uh, so the the manege um, things like um, you know doing displays again they were warlike in in manner but they were becoming less and less martial uh, in this period and and it's because the writing was on the wall for the heavy cavalry and I mean it wasn't even the writing was on the wall for heavy cavalry even back as far as you know the Battle of Crecy, <laughs> you know, the, we were, you know, even that was archers versus heavy cavalry. Well, the heavy cavalry did not survive that. Right. And it was, it was this association with nobility. It was the status symbol of having your heavy cavalry, having your knights, um, I think, which kept it going so long um, until finally, they, you know, with, with more and more firearms on the battlefield. It just became, you know, this is pointless. You've got to maintain that legacy of Charlemagne and ride all over your kingdom for exactly. the entire year like the Germans did. <laughs> just all going all over the place. Well, Great it looks site. good, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like right? owning a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, also made and in think, Bologna. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, uh, when we think about sort of the 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 dueling on horseback that we do now, I think it's been interesting at different tournaments that, that Jen and I have, have run and been at is you see a little bit of this, of these two worlds in that there are some people who are not as good at maneuvering their horses, or maybe their horses are, mm-hmm. are less trained. And so they kind of march their way into this, the center of the space. And then that person just tries to, you know, fight and have presence. And then there are good people who are excellent in equitation and they dance their way around the outside of that other rider and try to just kind of enter and exit and enter and exit. Um, and that gives this kind of light cavalry kind of, of um, feeling. And it's neat to, to try to play on, you know, being playing on both sides of that, um, of that action. You can see often somebody who can outride, even if you've got a very good swords, sword wielder, on one horse that's very stationary, the person who's got better riding skills can use the 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 lack of maneuverability of the of that heavy fighter's horse um, against them. Can put their horse your, your horse can be in your way as much as it can be in your opponent's way, mm-hmm. right. um, and and then can outride that person and just menace them and harry them. So you can see this kind of this sort of shift of tactics um, that we see in in battlefields kind of occur just even in a one on one kind of a fight you know when jen is fighting you know we've, we've had some from academy Duel, some of our more experienced uh, some very very tough sword fighters that i find hard to fight on the ground and you know jen will just outride that person um and so she never has to face their direct strength you know maybe they've got longer reach or whatever well jen can use her maneuverability to always place herself in a position of advantage and that's again that kind of a desire of light cavalry is to just be constantly maneuvering in such a way that you place yourself in in a position of advantage, especially over these ground troops that can maneuver, but cannot uh, like moving a pike wall to change facing. We know there's all these cool pike drills and things mm-hmm. for doing this. It does take some effort and good right. riders can, can help to menace mm-hmm. those groups can help make some, some action to at least pin down those pike groups, um, which is where sometimes we see light cavalry playing that role um, against uh, pike units. Yeah, and it does seem that once a pike unit was disordered, uh, that's when men-at-arms could really just chew those guys up. So the heavy cavalry could just chew up anything that wasn't in order or behind a fortification or something like that, just on the open field. But when they 
would actually stand still, like you're saying, if they had the discipline to not run away, then that was when they really ran into a lot of trouble. Um, so if you're on the ground, uh, is your primary target the horse or the guy on the horse? It depends who you are. Um, if you are a rider who has, you know, who has been on horse, you've lost your horse. Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to target the other guy's horse because you're probably going to try and want to steal that horse. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a hired man at arms, you're not a, you know, you might still t want that horse because they are worth a lot of money. Um, but your priority is probably going to be the horse because you're just trying to survive. Okay, so if you're just trying to survive, you want to take out the horse and try to take that person on on foot. But if you can, if you want the horse for yourself, then you want to try to take out the guy on top. Is that the idea? Yeah, and I mean the again in this period, ideas of of chivalry were sort of uh, changing, and um, it, it used to be considered very ignoble to attack the horse. Okay. Um, especially at the height of chivalry, at the height of the medieval, the era, era of the medieval knight, it would be ignoble to attack the horse. I think as we're getting into more and more um, paid soldiers who, uh, you know, as I said, are just trying to survive. Right. Um, you're, you, you, anything goes, right? Right. You're just trying to live. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think one thing to consider when you're thinking about attacking the horse mm -hmm. is while you are attacking the horse, you are not covering yourself from the attack of the rider. Right. So you need to maneuver yourself in such a way that you can make that attack to the horse and be in a position where you cannot be attacked easily by the rider. Now, if you have a longer weapon, but again, imagine even the longer weapon, a longer weapon can give you the benefit of a longer weapon than the rider, mm -hmm. then maybe you have this reach advantage to be able to strike the horse before they get to you. But of course, um, uh, horse, especially every cavalry horses had armor on them. Um, mm -hmm. If you do not, you know, if your, if your ground lance does not disable that horse or make that horse break off in some way, you're busy on this lower level than that person above you. Um, and so that's that's a, a tactical consideration you have to make. I would want to step across the horse. Again, this is a mm -hmm. big maneuver so that I could attack from the opposite side to the horse so that the rider is having to switch their perspective from fighting me on one side of their horse to fighting me on the other side of their horse mm -hmm. uh, while I'm attacking their horse. But again, these things are tough to do, and it really that means I need to have some space to be able to conduct such a maneuver. Right. That's, and that's you'd, how, you'd oh, want to have a shield, too. Yeah, a shield would well, definitely yeah. be awful. <laughs> but even, even, just, Big even just a buckler, right? Even right. You've got that buckler, Anything. You hold that buckler up over your head if you're busy cutting cutting a horse's right. uh, pastern, or, or you know, because that's one mm. of the ones that uh, uh, Paulus Hector Mayer shows is is you know cutting the horse's foreleg, you know, injuring okay. the horse, not not killing it immediately, but definitely disabling it. Um, but they're doing that with cover. <laughs> Yeah, and a more, and that's a closer, more opportune um, target that's more likely to to do some uh, good tactical damage to the horse rather than just coming into its body. Great. Uh, also, so then, where the horse okay. is more likely to be armored. So then, if you were um, if you were in a group, then like one person could then focus on the horse, and the other person could focus on a rider. Is that kind of how you think they would operate? Um, 
I hadn't ever thought of it in that terms. I mean, usually if you're in a group, you're you're going to be trying to hold your ground with a, you know, present that mm-hmm. sort of hedgehog right. um, that the rider can't get past. But you, you certainly could. Um, I mean, you can, you have a bunch of people, you can mob a horse, um, uh, you know, your strategy could be somebody to go for the reins. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because once you grab that horse's bridle, you, you take away some of the control from the rider. Um, but it's still pretty dangerous. It, you know, even, even say, two people against one person on a horse. Yeah, if you can have somebody distracting the rider, <laughs> yeah, you, maybe somebody else can come in and stab the horse. But I see you shaking your head, Devin. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's just, you know, two, yeah, you really want, if you're going to be in a skirmishing unit, kind of what we're talking about here, uh-huh. you know, if, if the, the pike unit, the, as Jen said, the benefit there, you're not really thinking about, you, there are sometimes arrangements where you see the, the multi layers of pikes at different heights. Uh-huh. Um, and so that certainly is threatening horses and riders. Um, uh, and but that's then you're really not thinking what you're thinking, you know, successful pike units, the discipline there is not that they're all clever tacticians and they're planning with their buddy, hey, you get the guy okay. on top and I'll all get right. the horse. Sure. It's much more that they're that they are have the capacity to hold their ground really well. That they aren't going that they know they need to stay in a particular formation, that they need to hold their ground. And it's the also being able the other discipline, of course, is being able to ex- exchange positions with pikes behind and pikes in front. When people are recovering their pikes, if they're casting their pikes, being able to change position with the next group of pikemen who are coming through. Those are the sorts of disciplines that are essential to those units being really successful and being able to turn and pivot. Uh, as opposed to the sort of individual tactical disciplines we think of as martial artists here. The type of, of, of tactics we're talking about here are kind of skirmishing tactics. And why I was nodding my head is just, that's just, you know, the, right. the skirmishers are the ones who had their, had their asses handed to them by cavalry for so long. Right. Because yeah. it is very difficult, even if you've got a group of you, to, again, somebody who's moving their horse quickly and violently, you know, the using a horse as a weapon... I think is not so much these like generous debunking. It's not so much these dramatic, like we see in movies because they just look cool horses rearing up and kicking people with their hooves and all that kind of stuff. It's much more just taking space, using your horse to take space and command space. That's really hard to fight against on the ground and really challenging in the skirmishing unit that the horses, the riders as these teams of two people to take up a lot of space work better as skirmishers than people on the ground do against them. Um, And so, so it's, you know, the difficult thing is, you know, you'd have to have to have two people against somebody on horseback, you'd have to be really confident, comfortable characters on the ground, um, uh, working in tandem, having some sort of strategy, probably having a high comfort around horses acting Mm -hmm. in these sorts of ways. Um, and then I think even then your chances against one rider are pretty, if that, especially if that rider's kind of circumspect about when they leverage their advantages and they're not just kind of coming in there chaotically, um, you know, you're going to have these brief split second moments to try to enact sort some sort of plan. And if that rider is good, they're never, they're not even going to let you get in a position where one person can grab the reins because they're going to, um, try to outmaneuver. That's a quite a close-up move to get a hold right. of somebody's reins. And if you're that close to be grabbing reins, you're also that close to be getting stepped on and pushed away by a horse as it wheels. There's a guy there's, on there's, a horse. Could, oh, go ahead. Yeah, there's a reason that that they still use mounted police for crowd control. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They're right, pretty crowds, intimidating. You know, crowds now, and they're letting people get close. And crowds could theoretically grab the reins of horses, um, but they are. 
Um, you know, even, I think here's the danger too. If I, if, if I, if I come up to one side of a horse and I grab and pull on its rein, the likelihood is I'm going to pull the horse toward me. So if right. I'm not thoughtful about how I'm using that, I, that pulling on the rein might very well be the thing that stops me from being able to be effective at the maneuver I was trying to, to conduct. Uh, did you want to take the next section of questions, Joshua? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, now that we've talked about whether or not you would attack the horse or the rider, um, if you are unhorsed, um, how easy, especially, I mean, we know that armor is a lot more maneuverable, you know, we're not going with this archaic notion of armor where like I'm flat on the ground and I'll never get up because I don't have a crane kind of thing. <laughs> um, but there is also the impact of you're in a metal suit and you've hit the ground and your entire body has collapsed against this metal from the height of a horse. Um, so once you're unhorsed, is that, is it easy to get up? Is it painful? I mean, obviously it's going to be painful, but, um, <laughs> or is it game over? Well, I mean, adrenaline is a wonderful thing. Um, and if you're in a battle, you, you're probably going to try and get up. But yeah, being thrown from a horse, regardless of what you're wearing, it takes the wind out of you. Mm. Um, you know, uh, if you're likely to have a concussion, like um, even if you're wearing, well, wearing a, a medieval helm is you know, will protect you from impact, but it, it won't protect you from the whiplash. And most of the concussion doesn't come from the impact on the ground. It comes, it comes from that sort of whiplash of hitting the ground. Um, or and, even uh, a lot of concussions come from just people closing, clapping their jaw closed really hard. Yeah. Oh, did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're, you're probably going to be concussed. You may not know it. Um, you're, you're going to have the wind knocked out of you. It's going to take a moment. Um, and yeah, adrenaline is, you know, if there's a battle going on, then adrenaline is going to get you up on your feet um, as soon as you possibly can. Um, but then you're, you're, you know, going to be fighting for your life on the ground, presumably. Um, getting back, getting your horse back after that, it's, you're probably not going to get your horse back till the battle's over if you survive and if it survives. The horse, the horse will leave the battle. I mean, some war horses were trained to stay by a fallen rider. This was more in the, um, the Turkish tradition um, and, and protect a fallen rider. But uh, in, a, in a melee situation, that, that horse is probably going to be gone um, and you're on the ground for the rest of the time. Yeah, horses aren't stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they know Sorry, not bud. Yeah. <laughs> that's um that's really interesting. Um so I um you know, you mentioned the the Turkish tradition and we we actually see that start to creep in um in this like the development of the historical chronicle where the Venetians love to hire uh like baltic troops they like to hire the uh, stratioti and we actually see guido rangoni lead stratioti and um most of their fighting tactics and training came from the turkish tradition so this is kind of this is an off-the-cuff question but how does do you know much about that is there is there kind of some insight that you can give us in that or i mean as far as cavalry goes um the yeah. the 
the Arab and, and uh, Turkish world used a, a lighter horse, especially in the Middle Ages. Their horses were much lighter. Um, so, you know, in the Crusades, it really was heavy cavalry versus light cavalry whenever you had any horse um, fighting going on. Um, and, you know, I would, I would imagine there was a lot of cross-cultural influence going on in the development of light cavalry from, from the Arab world. Yeah, and and we see because the um, the Ottomans also come up from southern Italy as well in some of the this period, and so we have like Stratioti and um, and other types of light cavalry. And I know that the the uh, yeah Venetians hired them a lot, and then that's I think is a big thing that sort of pioneers a lot of those sort of light cavalry tactics. Um, and I think that and the pressure of the the pike units. Because that kind of really develops through that war, I think, really forces this move to one. We've got much better, uh, just a, a strategic system that's much better against um, these new advanced types of of units. Um, and I also think that um, you know, light cavalry are just cheaper to equip as well. Yeah. Yeah, you could get uh, light cavalry. Looks like they cost four ducats a month, and men at arms cost nine ducats a month. And infantry right. only costs three ducats a month, so. But infantry sucks. They sound like that. Yeah, but you need them. You need them to hold the walls and gates and stuff like that. That's right, because when you don't have good infantry, that's when something like La Mota happens. Exactly. <laughs> or Criazzo. Um, and um, bear bear in mind too, in when you're talking about light versus heavy cavalry, the type of horse is different. So it's not just how it's equipped. Um, it, during the Middle Ages, the, the great horse, um, which is probably not nearly as large as movies like A Knight's Tale make it out to be, um, but the horses, that's when the great horse was developed. That's, the horses were getting larger. They were breeding so that they could carry men in armor and carry and wear armor themselves. Um, uh, in our, the period we're talking about now, that is when a lot of um, Arab blood was brought in to European horses. So you're starting to get um, horses being bred lighter. So they're starting to go for more refined um, light horse that is faster and more maneuverable. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, from that, um, when we get into the 17th century in England, that's where the, the modern thoroughbred developed where, when they really got into uh, breeding much faster horses, um, and there's and th those horses, the foundation sires, sires for the modern thoroughbred, um, were all um, Arabian horses. So, so there was there was three three sires, and they were all basically Arabian horses. And I think it's something that we, as a lot of regular folks when you're studying this period, don't um, think about is how sophisticated the breeding programs were of these different countries. They right. knew how to influence and quite quickly, like there's new breeds are, are bred in, in a very short number of generations have quite an impact. And it has to do with the desires of one access to horses they can get, but again, capturing horses is a big part. And the reason you want to capture horses is not just for um, uh, being able to um, uh, have these horses for your own military right. use, but it may also be also to capture them for breeding purposes. Um, and there are lots of sophisticated 
breeding programs. And so as the tactics change, well, then they try to start moving the horses in that direction to be able to make their own horses, to be able to field their own units that are these light cavalry units. I think back to yeah, Joshua's actually, question, I was just about sorry. standing. One thing I think it's important for listeners to think of too, with the falling off your horse and getting back up thing is that, um, tournament armor, which is where that idea comes from is a very yeah. different beast than field right. armor. Uh, even though we do have some heavy knights who fought in quite complete armor, they didn't have the great helms, these over helms that made the and that locked into in this in a kind of higher you know a great helm for jousting tournaments is an even larger helm that locks into the breastplate. Even though some full helms in in sort of late 1500s um, armor do lock into the breastplate as well, but it's just a much different beast that's made there to to um, uh, put you to you could protect yourself the in a tournament i know i'm going to get hit and i know what the circumstances are and i know that after i fall off my horse nobody's going to try to trample on me and i don't have to be able to get up as quickly right. etc right. so i can prioritize armoring as a form of defense i also not need to maneuver as much i you know i know where my opponent is i'm going in one direction and so to be safer on the battlefield you make some different choices and trade-offs in your armor and so even your heavy cavalry are not armored in the same way that you would in a tournament. Um, and we even know there's you know lots of different armatures that you can see in museums sometimes have um, field armor and tournament armor components that they trade in and out mm-hmm. um, in order. You know, you're changing your spalders to pauldrons, the larger shoulder arm that also protects mm-hmm. the chest. Or even from, from field pauldrons to tournament pauldrons that have this even larger and thicker plate you know so those are things i think that are important for us to think about when we're we're considering that trope of the knight who can't get up is that there is some truth to a knight who can't get up it's just not a knight on the battlefield Uh, i want to interject a quick horse question if i may um sure so in the late 1490s ludovico sforza invited like his client states to come to milan to see the breeding program at milan um is there something historical about the Milanese horse breeding program or anything like that? Or do you have any insight about that? Um, pretty much all the, the major powers, the, you know, all the kings mm-hmm. and dukes and things had horse breeding programs. Um, I don't know anything specific about the Milanese. Okay. Um, you know, there are different, um, you know, different breeds were being developed uh, in in different countries, we didn't have such a thing as a as a breed at that point. We were mm-hmm. still just calling horses, um, you know, destries or palfreys or rounces, depending mm-hmm. on what they were used for. Got it. Um, but it, this is the period where we were starting to to really see um, refinement happen. So this is when uh, the lipizzaners were developed, and this is. When the uh, the Baroque horses um, of Spain, um, and then also some more um, uh, Baroque horses, there were Baroque horses in in Denmark and things like that. Um, so yeah, I don't Great. I don't specifically know about Milanese. Sorry, okay. thanks. <laughs> so, Sorry about that. Sorry, I just wanted. No, to... Stephen, oh, I actually I was reading about this yesterday. Okay. Um, okay. There's a there was a bit on Francesco Gonzaga. Okay. Um, and it says that Fan- Francesco was not well educated or as intelligent as Isabella d'Este. Funny statement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he did not share her intense, intense interest for art as much. Uh, she was le- or he was less cultured than his father, grandfather, and many contemporary princes. However, he loved hunting, hunting dogs, 
and passionately was fond of horses. He imported horses from Spain, Barbary, and Arabia and produced a breed considered to be the best in Europe. Gonzaga's horses won all over Italy. No. A sporting man and a military man, Francesco admired his intellectual bride. Interesting. interesting. All right, that's a good note. Thanks, man. That's awesome. Yeah. We've got to yeah. run with that rabbit hole for some time. Well, it's it's interesting because if you look at if you look at the breed of horses, or at least the, the where he was getting his horses from, um, you know, he's primarily bringing in these lighter horses. But this is also at that time when we right. s- start to see that shift. Um, just which like Ken was leads, talking about, yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to jump ahead a couple questions here and yeah. just kind of run with where the conversation is at right now. But you know, in the period we're studying, we see this rapid growth of light cavalry, um, either Italians with crossbows or foreigners known as the Stradioti, as we discussed earlier. Um, and we know their arms were different. Um, so how would their horses be different? Um, and would light cavalry ride differently from men-at-arms? By men-at-arms, I'm assuming you're meaning like dragoons or something like that. Um, Knights. Or, okay. Men-at-arms men are generally the paid, I think you guys are meaning the paid, paid mounted soldiers. Mm-hmm. Right, the paid, heavily armored mounted soldiers. So okay. basically so. professional knights. Oh, professional knights. Okay. Um, the, well, the riding style is, is often um, dictated by the saddle. So saddles did okay. change um, from the, again, heavy cavalry would tend to have the larger, larger cantle and pommel, that is the back and the front of the saddle. Um, as, as we move into this period, we're getting, we're, the cantle and the pommel of the saddle both drop and saddles are getting um, a little uh, sort of, the nobility, the saddles of the nobility, which are the ones that, you know, we see on display are getting fancier. Um, but you will often see in medieval pictures, you'll see the knights with their legs very far forward. Um, and that's the, the riding style that's described um, by Dom Duarte um, is, you know, he talks about that particular riding style where you keep your, your legs forward in the bravante saddle with a longer stirrup. And then he also talks about the alaginetta, which is a shorter stirrup. So even um, um, even at the time of Dom Duarte of Portugal, there was difference, there were different styles of riding then. And alaginetta is, is more suitable to fast skirmishing. So you're looking at shorter stirrups, um, a more um, central rather than a braced position. Um, and the advantage of the shorter stirrup is that it does allow you to lift your weight off your horse's back. So again, if you're looking for speed, you would, you, you can often get off the horse's back and, and develop more speed that way. Um, that said, we didn't fully develop the two point position until, which is, you know, what you see modern hunter and jumpers use. We didn't develop that until the, um, uh, 19th century. Can we describe the two-point position a little bit more? Thanks. The so two-point position is just where you're standing. The two points you're standing on are your stirrups. Nothing else is touching the saddle. Or, you know, nothing oh, else has got weight in it. So you're, kind they, of, you're kind of, you're, you're putting yourself above the horse. You're standing in the stirrups as opposed to resting on the horse's back. So it gives the horse more capacity to move its back. It also makes it, it so the horse can move under you more. Okay. As opposed to you and the horse being joined together. Yeah. 
We don't see any Im, any evidence of of two point position prior to to the nineteenth century, but we do see the shorter stirrup that would have allowed it. So you can presume that you know it's possible that over long journeys, riders may have posted the trot, which means standing and sitting in the rhythm of the horse's trot, mm-hmm. if if they were trotting. Um, uh, you know that would you know, get, be more comfortable for the rider and for the horse. Uh, with the longer stirrup of the heavier saddle, that would not be possible. But you wouldn't ride your heavy destrier um, over long journeys anyway. You would ride uh, a lighter riding horse, and you would uh, you're, you would only get on your destrier at the site of the battle. Okay. Nice. So building off that... Um eventually towards the end of our timeline for the period that we've been writing about, um, even traditionally heavy cavalry units shift to more mobility as as, uh, cannons become more prevalent. The back, uh, sorry, the black bands in particular uh, were known for lightning raids and using Arabian horses, um, notably Giovanni della Bandaneri. Uh, To do this, they sacrificed pieces of armor and it was usually leg armor. How easy was it to cover your legs with secondary weapons on horseback? Um, I would assume, you know, the reason they gave up the leg armor is because you're not standing still long enough for somebody to really be able to attack your legs. Um, you know, once once you're getting into that, once you're getting into fast moving, um, fast moving horses, you're you're going to be doing things like sort of drive-by, um, you know, it's like it's like a drive-by attack. Um, and you really, you're, you're going to want to protect your head, you're going to want to protect your chest. Um, your horse is protecting one of your legs at all times anyway. Um, and, you know, if it comes to it, yes, you can, you can bring your sword down to cover that leg quite easily. Um, but again, like with any good fencer, legs should never be a target, right? <laughs> Um, because <laughs> while you're hitting me in the leg, it's way easier for me to hit you in the head. Um, right. So, and yeah. You can, when you're riding and fighting, you can still move your legs. They're not glued to your horse. Right. So there's some capacity to, to maneuver the leg. Okay. And I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, with when you're fighting in, in heavily cap, heavy cavalry got um, certainly had more circumstances where they would be mired down in a fight, like meaning they're not just charging through things, they're charging into things. And so then there's, there's you know, having armor on the legs is important because you're going to have some circumstances where maybe your lance is gone and now you're fighting um, uh, with your sword, and you're, you're, but you're not charging around, you're there fighting, uh, and you're using your horse to control space. Whereas with lighter fighting, you know, even especially when we're doing dueling on horseback now, you know, attacking towards the legs, as Jen mentions, is risky because that leg might not be there because it can maneuver out of the way and the leg itself can be moved. And then, of course, you, when you're attacking their leg, they're attacking your head. Now, if you're fighting infantry where your legs might be mm-hmm. more of a concern, well, you're fighting down to them anyways. So in, in a sense, by fighting down, you're starting to cover those low line targets and then they need to be fighting up to you. Um, so they're not, you know, again, if they get focused too low, they're just giving you more advantage of being able to come over top of them. Um, and, you know, again, lighter cavalry are just getting in and out. So they're not getting mired down the same way that would give infantry the opportunity to really be targeting the legs in a way that isn't so risky to them. 
Nice. That's that's really awesome. Um, yeah. We know it didn't work out for Giovanni very well because you know he got shot twice in the leg with a falconet. Oh, oh don't give don't give the story away. Don't give the story away yet. Sorry. We got a whole season um, to focus on that guy. Right. So but I think I think the, that the part of the thing there is when you're getting shot at that um, I think you just consider well, there's just this risk that you're going to be yeah. shot at, and armor can only protect you so much from from bullets or cannons. Um, right. And so you know, you're it's again, it's all a matter of trade offs. Yeah. So one thing it's it's interesting how you were talking about kind of the the use of that with secondary weapons on on horseback and in Bayard's chronicle uh, he mentions that Italian knights preferred hammers um, and French knights preferred maces as their secondary weapons. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, I, national disposition. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I like. I mean, both are. You know, both are equally effective. Um, you know, you're you're up high on a horse, and if if it's just a, like a good club to to bash someone with, um, the hammer has, you know, has is more directional. Um, but why one? You know, Devin, do you have I, any I think, thoughts? Yeah, one of my thoughts is that a hammer can hook as well as strike. Yeah. Um, so so it's directional. So when something's directional, it does mean that it has a bad direction for striking. Um, and I can, I can vouch for this from fighting with hammers that, you know, if it gets turned, slapping somebody with the hammer is not as effective <laughs> as hitting them with the head of the mm-hmm. hammer. Um, so hammers can hook hammers typically had spikes on the back as well. So a hammer was not just the, the hammer head. It was also the spike end. Um, and so most images we have of, of, of hammers used are, are, are bi-directional, um, and so that gives you more versatility, but you're taking versatility in exchange for universality, you know, the mm-hmm. capacity that a, a, um, a mace can strike in any direction. Um, and typically they also have some, because maces are typically um, uh, not just round there. They have these, they, they do have some directionality with these crenellations yeah. that, that right. give uh, these greater points of impact. Um uh, and so they, that's trying to take on some of those hammer-like qualities while being able to hit in any direction with it. It doesn't get twisted in your hand and, and do the wrong thing. Uh, but it also isn't going to hook any weapons out of the way. Um, it's not going to be a spike that can can strike into... Again, the benefit of the spike is not just its capacity to puncture armor and do damage under the armor, but it's actually even more so its capacity to puncture armor and then be used as a lever to be, to be able to pull somebody um, from their mm. horse. Um, so to me, that's where I might, um, I might choose to go with a hammer. If I was more, if I felt I was more skilled as well, I might choose the hammer over the, uh, the cudgel, but I could imagine if I was more practical, I might think, yeah, sure. You and your fancy hooking and, and spiking, that's all fine. But when that weapon gets turned sideways, I'm going to be bashing you with my mace. Uh, you know, in the chaos of battle, your soldiers are not going to be so intelligent as you would like them to be. Like, that's what I could imagine to be the practical argument. So basically, the so Italians we, had better training than the French, and they wanted a weapon to take better advantage. Or at least of that. they believed. Or at least they believed. They, believed they, <laughs> they at least had more hubris than the French. Oh. Well, that's yeah, that's a given. Maybe, um, maybe it's just so, that the mace is more stylish. Yeah, it, <laughs> right. is a, it is a pretty weapon. We have that that awesome painting. I mean, it's I of think Chevalier it's, Bayard. Yeah, yeah, Bayard on the bridge um, at the uh, Galliano River. I'm pretty sure the guy who wrote the chronicle about Bayard did so under a pretty significant amount of influence of wine as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best. Um, so 
one thing that I've noticed is that Italian, obviously Italian museums aren't the best for categorizing their artifacts, but something that I've always noticed is that the swords that we refer to as side swords are often categorized as riding swords. Um, why do you think that is? And do you think there's a carryover between the convenience of a single-handed sword on horseback into the dismounted arts described um, in the treatises that we study? Um, well, I mean, the single-hand, uh, the, the, the arming sword is shorter, so it's an easier draw on horseback, and, and you are mostly using your sword one-handed on horseback, so... You know why do you need the extra the extra hand width? Um, but that said, um, long swords work very well on horseback too. Um, I would I don't know that there's any carryover in the way you use the sword from like if if you're going to have it on the ground you're going to use it in the most logical way possible. If you're going to have it on the horse you're going to use it on the most logical way possible. I don't know that the one informs the other particularly. Um, it, uh, I mean, honestly, I, I like having a long sword on horseback. I like having that extra pommel length. It's really good for hooking and pommel strikes and things like that. Um, uh, but the draw length, um, the draw length is significant because you do have to draw under your reins. If, if you're wearing it. And I think also as, as swords became more, as, as we're talking about people getting more into status, you know, the, you're getting the basket hilt handles, you're getting, you know, the much, much more elegant uh, equestrian swords and things like that, that you see in these uh, paintings going up into sort of the Van Dyke paintings and things like that. Um, so, yeah, sorry. What was the question again? <laughs> so uh, we just see that the Italian museums uh, categorize, right. um, yeah, they categorize what we would call side swords as riding swords. Yeah. Um, I, I have some thoughts on this too. I think one is that side sword, like we think of the spada di lato, just means sword. Essentially, means sword you can carry. Like we sword. use this term side arm nowadays to refer to the pistol that you have with you, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, when are you carrying your sword? Um, well, one circumstance, we know that a lot of cities didn't allow you to carry your sword around with you. Um, mm-hmm. And so carrying your sword, the sword that you can have at your side, rather, um, you know, when when it is your secondary weapon, um, as opposed to having wh- where you have your lance as your primary, your first weapon. So I think that's part of why that's side sword and cavalry sword could be very synonymous with one another. Um, is because of that function. And I like what Jan is saying about, I think there's a shift too, in that when you are part of the advantage of the long sword, the longer handled sword um, from horseback in the medieval period, is is your it is heavy cavalry fighting in armor. And so the versatility of the longer handled sword has a tremendous number of benefits. It can be used, as Jan mentioned, hooking with the pommel. So there's a bunch of disarm techniques that are done, single-handed disarm. So you can be reining your horse with your left hand, and yet coming around and hooking the wrist and stripping the sword from the wrist, pinning the sword against your chest and and disarming the other rider. Um, and this is a lot of this is 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 predicated on the use of the pommel. There's a lot of pommel play. 
Uh, but this is also fighting against other people who are in armor. So just whacking them with your sword is not as effective. Mm-hmm. So you're using this greater utility of the weapon. You can, in a press, um, um, if you needed to, or if it just happens circumstantially, if you've dropped your reins, you can still use the weapon two-handed. And that can be a benefit for for power and leverage and, and for both defense and offense. Um, but then as people are less armored, um, it starts to make uh, that versatility is less important. Um, and so you can have a weapon that doesn't have the same powers against somebody in armor because you're not always fighting against fully armored people. And so then I think you get these more, um, gets more orientation towards single-handed swords, again, for fighting from horseback. And a lot of the people who are going to be wielding swords are people who are also on horses. They're the more, the more expensive soldiers, the wealthier people are the ones with swords. So again, I can see this association between Hmm. mounted people and swords, Mm -hmm. partly just because of class distinctions and economic distinctions as well. Um, so I think that's part of why there's that that classification, and not in this, and so there is a tactical element, but it's a tactical element to do with um, the what type of weapon is needed um, to fight from horseback, and this sort of shift away from the versatility of the long-handled sword to the more focused nature of the shorter-handled single-hand swords, again associated with um, riders, as opposed to it being oh that's a sword that is. Um, you know, like specifically made or that there's like mounted techniques or is only used from from horseback. Just the person who might also be fighting with it from the ground, they also own a horse um, uh, as opposed to that being. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the alignment, perhaps. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, that was really interesting. Um, Stephen, do you want to pick up with the um, archery questions? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we want to start talking about some archery stuff, for, uh, archery actions from a horse. So first and foremost, what's it like to fire a bow from a moving horse? Uh, first of all, we shoot bows. We don't fire them. Oh, right. <laughs> because that, that comes from firearms. Yeah, unless you don't uh, have it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then um, so a, a typical bow, like a, a horse bow, um, is is a shorter bow that fairly light poundage, mm-hmm. uh, and you basically have to drop your reins in order to use it. You, that is something that requires two hands, and you generally set your horse to cantering, and then you start shooting. Uh, this um, my experience is typically with Hungarian horse archery, mm-hmm. just because the. Um, Robert Borsos, who's done a lot of clinics for us, is um, comes from the Hungarian background, but it's fairly similar um, across the the world. And in, in the only difference is in the draw type. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's super cool. <laughs> it sounds fun. It's, um, it's not, and there weren't a lot of European horse archers, or you know, the Western European horse archers. That again, that came mostly from the steppes, um, the Hungarian tradition, there were Asian horse archers as well. Um, for the most part, people who had actual bows, as like long bows or short bows, would ride to battle and dismount to use them. Um, uh, the exception probably being crossbows, because there were mounted crossbows. 
Right, so that's actually maybe the next thing to talk about. So I suppose you shoot a crossbow rather than fire that as well. Um, <laughs> how is it different shooting a crossbow than a regular bow on horseback? Uh, well, once it's loaded, it's pretty much point and shoot. The You can't use this... Well, if it's a super heavy crossbow, you do need to still use two hands. You need that other hand to support the weight. Okay. Um, there were lighter bows... Uh, and there were actually stone bows. Um, so in the Musée de l'Armée in Paris, there's a beautiful stone bow that belonged to Catherine de' Medici. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a hunting weapon. Um, what is a stone bow? So it, instead of shooting a bolt, it uh-huh. shoots a stone. Or in, oh. and, and often, I guess, bullets as well. So... Um, steel ball or lead balls or or whatever sort of shot you have um but yeah it just it's it works exactly the same way as a crossbow it just doesn't shoot a bolt it shoots a stone uh and that one one thing you're oh go ahead jen i was saying that those are quite small they're quite they're definitely one-handed so that you can still you can have it loaded you would need to load it with two hands you have it loaded um and then you can fire sorry shoot with one hand (laughs) And one thing you were going to comment on, Jen, I think you were just about to say, too, in that regard, is there's different ways that crossbows are loaded. One is bracing with one hand and drawing the string with the other. Mm -hmm. Another is a crank that draws back the Mm -hmm. string. Uh, And the third is a stirrup that you put your foot in to to, um, load it. Um, And uh, I think, you know, from... From horseback, I think that's the the loading process that's the difficult part with a crossbow. Um, is that you know I think you could depending on the style of stirrup you have, you could have a stirruped crossbow and you could drop it down to your foot and and mm-hmm. load it along the side of your horse, mm-hmm. um, which I think might be easier than managing um, the loading in two hands. And certainly you can have a heavier crossbow, whereas one where you're actually loading the string. Uh, while holding the bow with the other hand, it can't be as um, as strong. Uh, can't have as high a poundage of um, of draw weight, and that's one of the benefits of um, of a crossbow is the power that it can have. Right. Um, although, again, the benefit from you know, like the the, the Hungarian style archery, um, often you are, and these are this is kind of aimed around very light cavalry. Um, you can hold arrows in the bow hand. And then you can draw them from the bow hand directly onto the string and release them. So you can actually carry, you know, uh, I, I feel quite competent, that I, I feel quite good that I can hold six arrows. Robert can hold about 16 oh, um, yeah. in his bow yeah. hand. I think um, seven, 17 is his record. Right. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a crazy, and there's a way you do them, there's sort of a pattern, a spiraling pattern you put them in, so it's mm-hmm. easier to draw. You're not having to, like, sort them out. You're just able to draw them working through that spiral, and you're holding them between the different fingers of your hand. Mm-hmm. So you're, like, essentially holding some, you, you the kind of the general sort of beginner part is you're holding, like, four arrows. So you've got your four fingers of your bow hand that are mm-hmm. ahead of the 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 bow at the back of the bow. And so you've got your, in your index finger, you have four arrows under your two, your middle finger and your ring finger. You have four arrows that are against the bow itself. Mm -hmm. And then you have another collection of four arrows under your pinky fingers, your pinky finger and your index finger extended. So the arrows come along the back of those individual, those middle two fingers. So that's how you can have 12 arrows. And then it's, you know, partly being able to just have more arrows in each of those 
okay. those slots. Um, <laughs> um, and and the, the the benefit of that over like having a quiver while you're riding is that in a quiver. Um, the arrows are bouncing around on a horse. So mm-hmm. it's not, it actually makes them almost completely unmanageable to get at. And if you have them strapped down in some way, then they're harder to extract. Whereas having them in your hand um, uh, allows them to have some stability and they're right where you need them, right on the bow, essentially able to draw. Either in some styles, the, the arrow is pulled right onto the, the side of the, the bow itself and then right to the string drawn and released and in mm-hmm. the style that that robert teaches you draw back you come against the string you then come to the other side of the bow and then release and draw so you kind of have a pull back enter back in pull back draw release which is uh, just there's a benefit to putting the the arrows a little more accurate when you put it onto the opposite side of the okay. of the bow so it's in between the, the your body and the bow versus the left, being yeah. farther yeah on the left versus being on the right farther from your body when you're releasing it where it's a little bit more capable of falling off of the the bow um, when you're shooting now again the other benefit of crossbows other than higher poundage is the thing that we just talked about there is a higher skill situation. Right. Um, and so crossbows, I think, you know, of course, I think often the drivers of so many things, a big driver, an almost equal factor um, than tactical advantage was always economics. Right. And so having the, the, the thing that you could put in more people's hands um, with less training. Um, so there's a, there's always, you know, there's a cost of the production crossbows are more, are, well, Crossbows are also not necessarily more expensive to produce. You know, long bows and things like that mm-hmm. come from very, you know, like are are take a lot of craftsmanship um, and very specific wood. Whereas crossbows were often done the the bow was done with metal. It could be a shorter um, length of arms. You know, in some ways the cost of I imagine the cost of producing crossbows and good long bows and horse bows was probably pretty close. Yeah, there's um, less craftsmanship also, involved, for sure. Yeah, less craft. You could be, you could pattern make them a lot more easily. Yeah, you could probably you know, do pattern it on making. A, yeah, off an assembly line, practically. I bet. Exactly, and so you probably could produce them for relatively close to the same cost, and then it's cheaper because you don't have to spend as much time training people. Right. You know, you think of the the the, the powerful. You know, we, the famous English longbow programs. So the thing we always, you know, I think a lot of people hear of in the mythology, which is also a lot of the truth, is how young those people started being trained to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, much much easier. You know, a crossbow. Um, you can put a crossbow into somebody's hands and have them start shooting it pretty effectively in an afternoon. So then, how long? Like a very it, Venetian solution. How right. long would it? How long would it take? For somebody who knew how to ride to use a crossbow, not long, not nope. long. I mean, the the difficult oh. part is riding. If you the riding know how is to the ride, hard part. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the loading. There were, um, I believe. I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I believe there are some stirrups um, that actually have a hook on them for for the purpose of of reloading a crossbow. So they oh, actually fantastic. have a hook that. A hook that you can put your crossbow stirrup onto, and and then that, great. You know, that pretty much answers up. our question. So it's pretty reasonable to assume that crossbowmen in a battle, mounted crossbowmen in a battle, would be able to reload their crossbow while they were riding. Yeah, I don't know that they would be able to do it at a gallop, though. Okay, right. <laughs> which is what? Which is what a 
a horse archer can. So, you know, a horse archer using a, a, a traditional bow can reload at a gallop. Whereas, you know, I think it would be more a case of, you know, you, you load up, you've got a bolt, you gallop past, you shoot that bolt, and then you circle back, reload, and then circle back again. Um, because they also, in this period, uh, light cavalry also had pistols. Um, so they would often have a pair of, uh, pistols and they're actually called horse pistols, um, with a big ball on the end and they would do that, that ride past shoot, mm-hmm. um, both shoot one or both of their pistols, um, stick them back in their belt. And then, um, then they've still got a pair of clubs to use when they need to use, you know, and when they have no ammunition or, or okay. no sword. So yeah, I think I think a crossbow would be used in the same way. There's again not a lot of. There's a picture in Talhofer mm-hmm. um, of mounted crossbow. Okay. Um, you don't see a lot though uh, in your. Yeah, in this time period, they're kind of they're the main form of cavalry that you find in Italy, yeah. and it's so sad that we don't have more information. Um, so how so? Um, hey, before Devin. we get to the next question, yeah, yeah, I need to to run. I've got to go teach some sword fighting. Oh, so oh. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry okay. to, to leave you guys in the conversation here. It's a really fun area, um, but uh, uh, Jen, I'll I'll have lots to to offer there. I'm just sad that I'll I'll miss it. I'll have to listen to it later um, <laughs> when it uh, when it comes on. Um, uh, one one last thing, just on crossbows before I run. I did years ago had a chance to do some. We were doing test cutting, mm-hmm. uh, and before we did the test cutting, we decided to take some crossbows, a hundred pound crossbow, and see if we could shoot it through this pig skull. Um, and the bolts do go through, and pig skulls are quite tough. Okay. So that gave a sense. A hundred pound crossbow could do some pretty effective damage, even through the the skull of a pig. Um, so it's it it hit um, right in the pole of the skull and split the skull, and so it would have uh, wow. would have been some significant damage uh with that bolt so that was that's some of my cool all right thanks Devin. thanks so much thanks Devin. see you Devin. okay so uh during a battle jen do you think that the crossbowmen would keep using their crossbows or do you think they'd let off a volley or two and then draw swords and charge in it it depends on if they're staying mounted uh or if they're riding to the battle and dismounting so my impression is mm-hmm. a lot of times crossbowmen would ride to the battle, dismount. I mean, they okay. were essentially dragoons. Okay. Um, but again, there's just not... It, I They haven't seen enough evidence one way or another. Okay. Um, and again, if, if they're doing... If, if they describe sort of a flanking, skirmishing, or, you know, or they're using the crossbows to sort mm-hmm. of disrupt the lines, then, you know, perhaps they would... You know, ride, ride in, shoot, ride out, load, mm-hmm. ride in. Sh- you know, sort of in a carousel like that. Okay. Um, and that is how that is how horse archers tend to operate too. Is the horse archers essentially, you know, they they do a, a drive past and and loose a volley of arrows, uh, not really with any target in mind. Just just you know. If you have an army and you're loosing a bunch of arrows into an army, you're going to cause some damage. Some and bad things are going to happen. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> people are going to be doing some dying, and that always tends to bring everybody's mood down a whole bunch. Yeah. 
So it's probably more like with the light cavalry, if they were staying on a horse, you think it's more like they'd be kind of doing their thing and then they're sort of waiting for the enemy to break and start to run and then they start chasing after them at that point when they're a little bit safer to get at? Probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, in our narrative history project we're working on, we're looking at a couple of uh, horsey situations, one in particular. Uh, in the first one, we have a group of knights who's sort of the retinue of this lord. And they've been set upon and surrounded by a larger group of mounted crossbowmen. How would the knights escape from this situation? Um, so they've been surrounded? It looks like they've been surrounded. So there's, you know, there's this lord who's having to go back and forth between mm -hmm. these, his camp and the city. Um, and there's a group of people that want to capture him. And so there's a, a, like a swampy area that would have offered a lot of hiding places and so we're guessing that, you know, they kind of come in from this hidden area and sort of surround them as they're riding to keep them from going away because it's a much larger group. Hmm. Um, well, the horses don't do well in swamps. Um, okay. You know, oh, okay. that that will slow them down. That will bog them down. Okay. Um, so anytime the footing is not, is not clear, um, mm -hmm. then, then you're going to be slowed down. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, to, to escape that situation, you're going to, you're probably going to take, take casualties. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> you know? we know the Lord, we know the main guy that everybody was trying to protect got wounded. So yeah. presumably there was a lot of dying involved there. Yeah. Um, so would, would the Knights be carrying lances with them? Do you think if they had to ride for, you know, say 10 or 12 miles in each direction or? Would they leave they the would, behind? No, they would probably, if if they're expecting to be, if they're in armor, mm -hmm. if they're expecting to be attacked, they'd be carrying lances. Okay. Um, probably not particularly long ones, probably, you know, mm -hmm. probably sort of your, your Fiore style spear. Okay. Um, it's possible they would just carry swords. I, again, you know, without any... Yeah. <laughs> So we're trying to dig into these little stories that we don't necessarily have a ton of information for and trying to use what we've learned from Hema to guess kind of at what happened. So. Yeah. What What was the length of the journey again? Um, so so it's from, it was probably about 12 miles, if I'd guess. So it's 18 kilometers, I believe. So 12 miles. And if they're armored, it would, you know, that would, that would be about a four-hour ride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if they're just going at a walk, um, so, you know, it's, it's possible some in the, you know, if, if it's a retinue, it would be possible to, that maybe not all of them had spears that, that, mm -hmm. um, again, because that is a long way to, to carry, but if it's dangerous territory, you probably want all the weapons. You, know, you can have <laughs> yeah. better to have achy muscles than bleeding yeah. wounds. <laughs> um, but you know, you can, like I said, if you have a if you have a spear rest that you can and you can rest it against your shoulder, it kind of it, you know the, the end of the spear sits in the stirrup, the the top of the spear is in, against your shoulder, kind of in posted idana. And oh yeah, you can okay. Just not even hold it. Um, uh, okay. Or or you can carry it over your shoulder. So. So I was, I was kind of bringing this up because this is sort of the situation where Guido Vaina attacks uh, Hannibal Bentivoglio and right. when he's going back and forth between Ravenna and the uh, camp near Rusi. 
Hmm. Um, cool. So you think the Knights then would just kind of get their lances out, just set the direction they want to go, and just try to break their way through? Or will horses not charge into groups of other horses? They, war horses are trained to charge into groups of other horses. Horses okay. in general don't like it. They don't. Okay. They all like to go the same direction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but that's one of the things in the program we we have to train the horses to do right away is to is to you know be happy going towards another horse because they it's it's not something that's natural to them. They like to they like to go in circles or in, all in the same direction. So do they? Is that like not all horses pass that program or? Um, there are just some horses that are that are better working with other horses than than others okay you know, they all, all right. yeah they'll have their individual personality there's some right? that always that always put on a face that says i want to kill you now so. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is great for a war horse but we actually don't we, you know, we don't want our horses biting us so. <laughs> they're oversized dogs right jen uh kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> but, all right. Um, so here's another situation that we're looking at. This is about the Battle of Samoja. Um, so we have, it looks like probably a large group of light cavalry uh, trying to stop a much larger group of guys with pointy sticks. Um, how would they set about trying to do that? Um, so you've got uh, the large, the, the larger group has the spears. Yeah, so yeah, so it's like probably a couple thousand guys with spears, spears of various or sorts, or or pikes, yeah. whatever, you know, bills, you know, farm implements, whatever. Yeah. And then a couple hundred um, mounted crossbowmen trying to keep these guys from going where they want to go. Uh, well, the nice thing about the crossbows is you don't have to get within range of those pointy <laughs> sticks. Okay. Uh, so, so you'd start just trying to plink, at them, plink them away at a distance, huh? And you'd probably circle. You'd probably do a, a – if you have the terrain, you'd probably uh-huh. do a galloping circle around them. Okay. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, shoot and, and then load and then shoot and, you know, come back, shoot. So keep doing that. And then the guys on foot then would be looking for terrain in which the horses couldn't follow them in order to get away? Well, you know, the, the problem is, it, it, I guess when you run out of bolts, you've got a problem. Depending <laughs> how many bolts they have. Right, right. Um, the, the, guys, the guys on foot, yeah, would, be hope, would, would probably be looking for terrain where the horses could only approach from one direction. That would give them give them more cover um and uh and kind of wait till the horses you know till the horsemen use up their bolts um okay yeah all right so mostly they're just trying to keep going and look for some better better dirt to walk across yeah okay cool um i think that covers all our questions did you have any more joshua yeah, I've got one more, Jen. So, I've and there was a time where I was really looking into horse archery, and mm-hmm. one of the things I think I remember learning about, and maybe you can clarify this, but when you're riding and you're shooting, um, you kind of have to time your shots to your horse's gait. Is that correct? You don't have to. It the smoothest part of the gait is the moment of suspension. So a canter has three beats. Uh, 
it's that's that sort of da da dum, and then there's a pause, right? So it's da da dum pause, da da dum pause, and that pause is when all four feet are off the ground. So that is your smoothest part. If you could time your shot to that part, then that is, you know, that is probably going to give you the most accuracy. Um, but you can shoot in other parts of the gate. You can shoot from a trot. It's just, it's just bouncier and, and you're less accurate. Um, and then if you're shooting from a trot, you're probably going to come up into that two-point position that I mentioned where you're standing in the stirrups so that your knees are taking all the, uh, are absorbing the shock. Um, and that keeps your, your aim more level. Um, I mean, with, with horse archery, at least the Hungarian style, you draw to the chest. You don't draw to the cheek like you would on so, the yeah. ground. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not actually sighting down the arrow. Um, you, um, it's, it's sort of more of an instinctive, um, an instinctive practice thing is just, I know that if I draw and, and release the arrow, it's going to go there. Um, so, so yeah, like if you can time it to the, to the canter, the moment of suspension, then that's great. Um, but sometimes your target is not there, right? So right. you, you got to, yeah. if your target is happening before that, then you've got to release before that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, Steven, you're muted. Steven, you're muted. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Jen, thanks so much. I really loved that class. That was probably my favorite class at the uh, event. You, you missed a really fun one, Joshua. They, they had like wooden horses on wheels that we were pushing around. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's Dalagoke's advice, right? So, I didn't know he, that. Yeah. Yeah, he tells you if you want to learn how to joust and you don't have a horse to basically create a, a rolling mount that you can use and you can <laughs> learn all the principles of jousting from from your your wooden mount that you Gosh. create so so i got to get a couple of cheap bicycles and weld them together then and put a seat on it and see how <laughs> <Yeah>. that works <laughs> exactly exactly it was a ton of fun oh, all right great jen it. thanks so much jen um hopefully yeah, awesome. I, we'd like to get you back maybe in february we want to get uh, a little bit more on the horsey side and sure about horse care because there's a there's a big story where we're trying to figure out whether somebody sabotaged somebody's saddle or whether they uh, <laughs> or whether the horse just farted because and the saddle saddle wasn't put on tight enough at the beginning and that's why this guy fell and got captured. <laughs> it could be either, but yeah, no, I'm happy to come back on. Awesome. All right, awesome. Cool, Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that concludes another episode of Le Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Jen and Devin Borman again for coming on and sharing their wisdom with us. Next week's episode is going to be our Christmas episode. So if you want a couple of presents that Stephen and I have been waiting to unpack and deliver to the Bolognese community, then you should be sure to tune into that episode. Until then, stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>